All right, you ready? I'm ready. Let's do this. Welcome to The Loyalist Connections. Established 1783. Let's talk about Beachville. Beachville is now located in Halifax on St. Margaret's Bay Road. If you're driving from Yarmouth area, that's roughly about three hours. Might be a little bit under three hours if you're coming from the Yarmouth area. What is interesting about Beachville is that it originally stretched from the northwest arm out to Five Islands Lake, which is around the Tantalan area. Right. Beachville, like, I think it started with, what, 5,000 acres of land? Yeah. And now if you drive to Beachville, and I said this, I live out, you know where I live, around St. Margaret's Bay Road. You can drive out there and then you're past Beachville in a blink of an eye. So how did it go from the northwest arm to Five Islands Lake, and then now it's just a, a quick drive. It's a blink. I, I, I don't. I it really don't from, understand it from, that. It went from half the city to a blink. Yeah, five thousand acres, like you said. So, um, other interesting fact as well too is if you look at residential and commercial development. Apparently, they're looking at building thirteen hundred homes and offices and stores in the next little while in the Beachville area. So they're still encroaching on the community? Yeah, it seems like that. <laughs> um, you know, continue to, to grow the area. So Ah, ah urban development. Urban development. Urban that's the word development. I'm for. Yes, yes, that's right. Yes, urban development. Yes. Well, I mean, there's a number of subdivisions out there now. I think one of the oldest was the Monroe subdivision. Right. Now, the settlers initially, from what we understand, were from the War of 1812, so the Black Refugees. The black refugees arrived here. There's about 2,000. I think some came from Chesapeake, Virginia, Georgia. Some came from Bermuda. And then some trickled in, like in that time frame between 1812 until 1816. So the total number, we're not certain. We know roughly around the initial settlement period, there was around 2,000 people. Now, for speaking specifically about the African Nova Scotian community, in 1970, there were roughly 300 African Nova Scotians. And as of 2016, there were roughly 150 African Nova Scotians. So when we talk about the black refugees that settled in Nova Scotia at that time, it's interesting to note that there was a variety of different settlements. We're looking at places like North Preston, Upper Hammonds Plains, Beachville, or at that time as known as Beach Hill, and Africville. So another interesting fact is that we both have ties to these communities. I'll let you talk about your ties to the community specifically as well. Yeah, like from what I'm learning from my ancestry search is, you know, I'm connected to North Preston, like we said, like East Preston, uh, have connections to Africville. It seems like some of those uh, communities that were from that wave And we've had this conversation before. I talk about my mother's side of the family, her handing me those documents and saying, literally saying, 1812 Chesapeake Bay and settlement in North Preston. I I refer to North Preston, but it was actually the Prestons Uh at that time. So I know that I also have ties with the Upper Hammonds Plains community on my mother's side as well, too. Nice. Um, So definitely both have ties and connections to this third wave of migration uh, to Nova Scotia. 
what we're also seeing uh, a lot, and I really didn't understand like the connection, but now I'm like starting to see it more and more, is the connection to the Caribbean. Like so far through this journey, we've seen connections with Trinidad, Barbados, the West Indies, Antigua, Bermuda, like throughout this journey. So what we still see today is like, those migrations like we see caribbean you know people from the islands all the time so looking at beachville itself doing some of our own research some of the interesting things that we wanted to uh, explore women's perspective so i always think about my grandmother specifically because she's from weymouth falls i want to know what the urban experience was like for somebody growing up in beachville around that same time uh-huh. I don't know. And this is where we're going to have to ask our special guest for a little bit more guidance in terms of how Beachville was able to slowly dwindle away to this small community right now. Yeah, this is... Geographically, let's talk about, because I still think they're a very significant community. Absolutely. Very significant. Great contributions to Nova Scotia, Black history. Canadian culture. Uh, We need to explore this. have our special guest, which is uh, Dr. Barb Hamilton Hinch. In the studio with us. Yes. So great New to experience. Be here. New experience. Thank you so much for coming out. Thank you for having me. So we uh, briefly touched on Beachville. Uh, what we understand is you are from the community. Can you let us know a little bit about how you're connected to the community? Absolutely. So in everything I do and say, I acknowledge Beachville as well as Cherry Brook, Uh because both of those two communities have raised me. So my father is from the community of Beachville, Uh and my mother's from the community of Cherry Brook. Oh, interesting. So when my mother was 18, she became one of those young brides Uh and moved from Cherry Brook to Beachville and then decided to start her family there. So I've been born and raised in Beachville. Uh And I had six brothers and sisters. We lost one very early. He was the firstborn, uh-huh. but he's still very much so a part of our family. And so I was born and raised in Beachville, did all of my education in Beachville, and only moved out of Beachville when I went to university. Wow. So I have a, a long depth. Yeah. Wow. So, and it was very fortunate to have lots of cousins uh-huh. that lived with us in Beachville, my grandparents. So we were a very close-knit family. Everything I did was in Beachville. Even to this day, although I live in Dartmouth, uh-huh. I still travel to Beachville for church. Wow. And when my mother moved to Windsor, Mm -hmm. uh, when she married her second husband, she would travel from Windsor to Beachville. So when she was doing that for, I don't know, more than seven years, I'm like, what could my excuse be not to drive across the bridge (laughs) and continue my allegiance and my family connection to my community church of Beachville? So all of my children were baptized in Beachville. I was married in Beachville. So Beachville is very much so a part of me, and and that will be my resting place when I'm called home. That's amazing. And you lived in the Monroe subdivision. I did live in the Monroe subdivision, but funny enough, we didn't start out in the Monroe subdivision. People claim because mom had and dad had a sixth child, it was time to move to a a bigger house. Uh So for the longest time, we lived on my grandfather's property which was near the Beachville Baptist Church. And it was a very, very small house. Mm -hmm. And at that time, they were raising five children in that small house. It might have had two bedrooms. 
And then there was the opportunity for redevelopment or new development in Beachville called Beachville Monroe Subdivision. Mm -hmm. So they moved up there and actually it was like a co-op. So they actually helped to build their homes. And I have pictures of my mom actually building our home in 1968. So were you guys like one of the first families in the In the subdivision, we were. Wow. Yeah, we were one of the first families in the subdivision. We've seen a lot of new families move Uh in and out of the subdivision, which I think is happening to a lot of our black communities, period. And I think, and you may get into this later, but we were always told about our history in Beachville growing up. That's one thing I really love about my community. Uh And the fact that our community didn't start where it is right now. And so Beachville actually started by the Armdale Rotary. Okay. And there used to be a prison by Melville Island. Mm-hmm. And there was a prison. That prison was actually in the community of Beachville. That's how far wow. Beachville was. It was way past the Armdale Rotary. Yeah. And so if you ever go to Melville Island, there is actually a, a sign that talks about Beachville and the black Jeez. refugees in Beachville. And then it went as far as Five Island Lake, which is out towards the high school, Sir John A. McDonald High School. So our community was huge. Mm-hmm. So when things were happening... To Africville. It was also happening to Beachville, and it continues to this day. Mm-hmm. We were very surprised as young people growing up or as adults growing up that they actually named Beachville States Beachville States because there's been such a history of white communities being mm-hmm. called white names. Yeah. So right. such as Lakeside. Not yeah. white names, but not recognizing that they're in Beachville. Right. So such as Lakeside and Timberley. Uh-huh. They are located in Beachville, mm-hmm. but because there's more predominantly white communities moving into those areas, those names change to Lakeside and Timberley. So it's like a, a different sense of identity Absolutely. Uh, within the black community, Absolutely. right? And they're yeah. living on... Yeah, it's not in a different sense. They just changed Changed the identity. Similar to how North (laughs) Preston, if you think about North Preston, Gardican Street, as soon as you start getting outside of black communities, they want the names changed or they don't want to be associated with black communities as they begin to move into communities. Ah, So that's like Gardagen to Novali. Right. You mentioned that you were raised in your grandparents' house. Yeah. It was a two-bedroom home. Well, we were, we'd had a smaller house on, their, on our oh, grandfather's on the property. property. Yeah. Is that property still in the family or? No. No. The property is not still in the family, and that's actually quite painful. Mm-hmm. And people sell their land for different reasons, and I'm not privy to what happened with mm-hmm. that property. Mm-hmm. I just know it hurt to watch it leave the family. And as I travel to Beachville and I look to the right on my way to church mm-hmm. and seeing that being developed yes. is hard. It's hard. And how close it is to our church, uh-huh. right? So our church has been fighting a long time because we have been designated as a historical site. Yes, um, We've been around in Beachville since the 18th century, since yes. 1816. We're, yep. we're the original black refugees after the War of 1812. Mm-hmm. So our history is strong. And, and we have been in that community since. And so when people talk about the founding of Canada and, and all that sort of thing, we were here before Canada was a country. And, and people seem to forget that. Well, yeah, I think that's, that's a really good that's point. That's powerful. Yeah and, yeah, and we were, right? And that's I think we powerful. have to stop and realize that. Yeah. Further to Larissa's point about, you know, the land transfer, what would be some of the benefits to selling your land at that time? Why would you give up your land? Was it? external pressure? Well, I think it would be similar to some of the things that, well, in terms of Africa, they fought and they're still fighting. Mm -hmm. And I think some of it comes down to need. I mean, you're dealing with a lot of black families, African Nova Scotian families that don't have a lot. And land is value. And it still is value. Mm -hmm. And if you don't realize the value of your land, and if you need a new house, if you need food, if you need a car, Mm -hmm. then you're going to sell your land Mm -hmm. if they're offering you something else, right? So, And that's often what companies and businesses do. We'll move you 
but we'll give you this for your land. Uh-huh. And it's seldom the value of what the land is worth. And so you slowly saw this encroachment happening in Beachville. And we'll just move you a little further back, but we'll still give you land. We'll move you a little further back and we'll give you some money. But yeah. it was never the value. And so if you have a, a generation of populations that not that's not growing up educated and by no means of their own. I mean, we live in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia was a segregated and still to a degree continues to be a segregated province. We had segregated schools. We had segregation. It lived in Nova Scotia. It lives in Nova Scotia. We uh-huh. had racism. We have racism. Uh-huh. So none of that did not cease to exist and still exist. So yes. when you have individuals who are just fighting to live, who are raising their families, who are working often in domestic work or, in, or as laborers, and you're given the opportunity for a couple thousand dollars to sell your land and move, and you haven't seen that much cash in your hand uh-huh. from one paycheck, uh-huh. what are you going to say? The choice is easy. Oh, it's easy. Right. So we can't yeah. fault our, our ancestors and our grandparents and great parents for what they did. Well, you mentioned they something. They did it out of necessity. Yeah. They you, did. And you mentioned something that was very powerful there, education. Right. Yes. And so, you know, if you don't know the value of your land, then somebody approaches you and says, hey, well, I'll give you this. You said it's that's literally like a paycheck or two to them. Right. What are you going to do? Right. What are your options at that point? Yeah. You're, you're trying to basically get out of out of poverty. Yeah. Some of these obscure situ- situations. I don't know about you, but I probably would say yes. Yeah. Another thing that's really like interesting about that is given the circumstances of the time, People had to live in the present. They couldn't think long term. No, absolutely. It's like we don't have forethought to understand and appreciate that land equals generational wealth. Right. We need like to live. We need to survive. And I need to take care of my family. I I need to take care of my family. One thing I love about African Nova Scotians and being a person of African descent is family is paramount. And especially parents and grandparents will do anything to protect their children and their grandchildren and their generations of family. And that's why you all said generations living together. Mm -hmm. That was their way of supporting and protecting each other. And Mm -hmm. that existed in our home. Our parents, our grandparents raised each other's children. We raised cousins and cousins were raised like brothers and sisters. Cousins were raised like aunts and uncles. Mm -hmm. We took care of each other. And so that meant that I had to sell something in order for you to have something, a pair of shoes, an education, then I'm going to make that sacrifice because that's all I can do for you. So given the time that's elapsed from when you were a child to present, do you see a change in that family dynamic? Like has a family changed? That's a really powerful and interesting question. What defines me is family and Mm -hmm. being with you. When I'm in the presence or amongst people that are non-black, I throw around doctor like it's rolls off my tongue <laughs> like anything. They need to know who I am uh-huh. and they need to know my education. Yes. So that's the struggle that I have is when I sit here with my brothers and sisters and recognizing my credentials, but that doesn't define who I am. My community defines who I am. So when I moved outside of my community, that was challenging for me. And I think for me, that's why I maintain the Sunday connection. Yeah. Right? And Sundays right. was huge for the black community. You'd go to church and then we'd always go to our grandmother's house after church and so my kids don't have that same experience, but they, they did have it when my mom was alive. And then from Beachville, we'd go to Cherry Brook for supper yeah. for Sundays to be with our Cherry Brook cousins. And so we always knew who our cousins were. I mean, I have over 100 cousins mm-hmm. that would be close to my same age, and I could name them all. My children can't name their cousins. And that breaks my heart. And, and, then, and then when an aunt or uncle or cousin comes by and says, I'm your people, they're like, 
you are? <laughs> yeah. So that's a struggle for me, but I do my best to keep them connected. Mm-hmm. Um, and they understand the importance of that. So I am thankful that they understand the importance of it and they are thankful for it. It's just that their, their growing up experience isn't as rich in that way right. of the black community as mine was. And I guess that like just highlights the changes from like when you were growing up to now, like how the dynamics of the family have changed because like I can remember like growing up in the, in the square. Right. It was mm-hmm. I just go next door to get anything I Absolutely. needed. Absolutely. You know, you don't have to worry because everybody in the community is watching out for you. But isn't it interesting? We've talked about three different historical black communities. Right. Yeah. Yarmouth, Beachville, and the square. Yes. And they all had those similarities. Like yes. that's what we did to survive. We created these communities around us that were essentially, and I've said this before, like safe havens. You right. knew where to go and right. where you were protected. Mm-hmm. And even when you connect that to education, right? So as a community, you're going to school together. Yep. Yes. Right? So you're often going to have more than one black person in your class. Mm-hmm. So my children didn't have that experience, right? Because mm-hmm. we lived in a predominantly white community. They went to a French immersion school. So they're lucky if they had three mm-hmm. in their class. So they didn't have that even within school that sense of community. And so we would walk to school together. So um, when I went to school, so so Beachville did have a segregated school system mm-hmm. right up until 1964, around that time. My brother went to segregated school. Really? And so he talks in the film from Dr. Sylvia Hamilton, who's, oh, who's wow. a relative of the Little Black Schoolhouse. Schoolhouse yeah. And she does interview some of the folks from Beachville who attended the segregated school in Beachville. And so by the time I was ready to go to school, I actually walked to Beachville Lakeside Consolidated, and that would have been the school that replaced the segregated school. And so we would walk to school together from our community of Beachville. And the walk was probably about 20 minutes, but there wasn't a school bus, and you had to do that every day. Access. And so you would walk to school in the morning, you'd walk home at lunch, because there wasn't a lunchtime program, you'd walk back to school, you'd run home at lunchtime, literally, because you'd have to get back (laughs) in an hour. You gotta get back. (laughs) And then you'd walk back after, after school. But at least you were walking with your friends. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's when we really began to experience this thing called racism within the public school system, because now we're being treated differently. And then we changed from Beachville Lakeside Consolidated to go to Alderwood. So Beachville went from grade primary to grade three. Mm-hmm. And then we went to Alderwood Elementary from grade four to grade six. We were still walking, and that was about another seven minutes from Beachville Lakeside Consolidated. There's mm-hmm. no cafeteria. So that's why I smile at kids when they talk about trying to get home for, for school and getting a bus to go to school. And and I remember when I was at Alderwood that I would actually go to one of my white students or friend's house for lunch, but only if her parents were at home. Because she lived close to Alderwood, so I would be invited to go to her house for lunch, but only if her parents weren't home. Um, and then from Beachville, the, from Alderwood, which was in Lakeside, we then went to Timberley Junior High. So that's when we began to be bused. And even though we had to pass Lakeside and Timberley Mm -hmm. to get to Timberley Junior High, we only had a bus for Beachville. None of the white kids were on our bus going to Timberley Junior High on the bus. We were. The bus became integrated Uh when we started going to high school, um, which was at Five Island Lake, John A., so you knew, and so if you were smart, if you missed your bus in Beachville, you could run to Lakeside to get that bus because it was a little later. Uh-huh. But we actually drove past Lakeside to go to Timberley. And so even when I got to Timberley Junior High, because I did well academically, that's when they really began to separate us. 
Ah. And so I became the only black child from grade seven to grade nine in my junior high, which really affected me. I'm speechless. And this is, you know, one of the questions I had was, you know, the long term mental health and physical uh, health that, you know, how does that affect you as Mm. being the only black person in that class. And so I think my interest in that is because it's a lived reality. And that lived reality goes far back. And when we think about those memories, we're recalling pain, right? And people don't think about people of African descent experience historical trauma. And we have historical trauma. And we talk about that. Exactly. And we talk about that trauma. And so what was challenging for me, and it still happens to this day for some of our students, is you would get name called, right, by by all communities. Oh, you think you're white because you're smart. So we continue to associate being smart with being white, which was problematic. So mm-hmm. here's my community that raised me. And only because I'm doing well in school, now you're thinking that I'm thinking I'm different. So should I stop doing well in school so then I can have my friends from my community? Or should I keep doing well in school and deal with that sacrifice? So like uh, you're being called like, uh, are you an Uncle Tom? <laughs> yes. It's like, a, I've been called an Uncle Tom. <laughs> I, can, I can just tell you this right now. That That's happened to me my whole entire Absolutely. life. Absolutely. You know, right. somebody called preppy. Yeah. What, right. What do you, what do yeah. you mean? Like... When oh, pre- why are you going to class on time? Right. right? You know, there was... <laughs> why are you hanging out? Yeah. Why, you know, why... It, like, you know, come come down here, right? You right. know, right? So, like... And you know, it's f- fortunate enough, I had a lot of guidance, you know, from my, my parents. Also, basketball kind of kept me on that straight path. Right, and like, I was a soccer player. Yeah. And so once you get to junior high, unlike generations now, we weren't introduced to organized sports. We couldn't afford it. Yeah. There wasn't this thing called club sports growing up. We were in the country. It was called the country. We were, it was the county. So I didn't play any organized sports until early junior high, and soccer was my sport, and I played it right up to the national level. But that was my saving grace, but also my soccer team was predominantly white. And I remember my, my parents were busy and often had to work on soccer games so I'd have to get a drive from my white teammates who were afraid to come into my subdivision and I'd have to wait on the side of the road to get picked up to go to our games. Um, so so when you talk about what do I remember and how do I recall that, I, I, I remember that pain. And so mm-hmm. I was very thankful for family mm-hmm. because your cousins still stay, have to be your friends. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you just have to go tell on them. Yeah. And so they can't be mad at you too long in that generation, right? Mm-hmm. So, so now, like, just looking at all this, how has your lived experience mm-hmm. influenced your research and how you give back to the community? So one thing that I recognize as being a person of African descent is that the things that we do, we always think about our black community Uh forefront. We are one of the most unselfish populations. We're always thinking about, if I do this, how can I help somebody else? Or what impact will that be? And Mm -hmm. how can I influence? Or how can I support? And so even when I think about every degree that I've done, it's always been, how can I connect that to my community? All the Mm -hmm. research I do is, how can I connect that to my community? So my first degree I went into was recreation management. Never thought about it as a degree. Mm -hmm. I'm an athlete. Who does a degree in recreation? I remember saying that. I was working at George Dixon Center. 
designer and it was a staff person said, hey, you should do a degree in recreation. I'm like, ah, that would be perfect because while people are relaxing Mm -hmm. and playing and having fun, I can talk to them about themselves. Mm -hmm. I can talk to them about their identity. I can talk to them about education and they won't realize that they're being talked to and motivated Mm -hmm. because they're having fun. Yep. And so bought some health and wellness into that community. Mm -hmm. And then I went back and did a master's and my intent was, because then I started having a family, was to become a principal. So I have an education degree as well. Mm -hmm. And the reason why I was doing that is because I didn't want to send my kids into a school system that damaged me. Right. I wanted to be in a system where I could watch what teachers are doing to my my kids Mm -hmm. and protect them. And so... As I was finishing up my education degree, I got a call to go to the university into a position that I helped create in the 80s. So in the 80s, Cultural Awareness Youth Group created a bunch of little, um, what do we call ourselves, advocates, activists. Mm -hmm. And so we advocated for the Black Student Advising Center Mm -hmm. um, in the 80s because we were there as en masse as black students coming from the Mount, St. Mary's, and Dow. And there wasn't advisors who looked like us. Mm -hmm. And we would be like that book, Why Are All the Colored Children Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, which still happens in our high schools, Mm -hmm. right? So we would do that at university. We'd have a space and you would know where to go if you want to be with other black students. So we said, you know what, enough of this. As the executive, we advocated with the president to get a space and an advisor, and we did that. And so in 2002, the position became vacant, and I had an opportunity to go back and be the black student advisor. And I share this long story because everything I'd done was to work with black people and to be connected to black people. So in 2008, I accepted a position as an assistant professor and started teaching and then started my PhD full time. Throughout all that process, I was developing courses around people of African descent. Mm -hmm. I was doing talks around racism and discrimination. So all of my courses that was present, which is very evident in my course evaluations when white students would say, oh, Dr. Hamilton Hinch made me feel uncomfortable in class. And I would just read it and (laughs) keep on going. I I have this problem where I laugh because... You know, I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. But and we've had this conversation before. Like, when I hear somebody say they feel uncomfortable, I always stop and say, how do you think I feel? Right. Yes. <laughs> right. So I was fortunate to have uh, Senator Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard, who was at Dow at the time, and she mm-hmm. was doing research, national research, on uh, the impact of racism as violence. And it was a national research project. So I'm like, oh, my heavens, that will be perfect for my PhD. So I worked with Dr. Wanda Thomas-Bernard um, doing my PhD on the impact of racism on the health and well-being of women of African descent. Mm-hmm. And I really want to look at women because I want to look at myself. Yep. I want to talk about my experience. I want to be able to connect to the women that were engaged in the research and and really because a lot of women carry the weight of the family. It's really true. And, you know, one thing Larissa and I talked about, and this is kind of to take kind of a walk back in history, but you were speaking about your mother and her mother. I have questions because of some stories I've heard about my grandmother and work-related opportunities for her. But what was the landscape like for your mother or, and your, I guess, grandmother in that yeah. sense in terms of opportunities? Well, it goes back to the strength of being raised in a black community because mm-hmm. a lot of our mothers had to work outside the home. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our mothers were initially domestic workers. So my so mom what does that mean? would have been tell, a domestic. They would have predominantly worked in predominantly white upper class homes. Um, mm-hmm. In this case, a lot of them worked in the south end of Halifax. 
and they would either travel together by car or take the bus. Mm -hmm. So when I was young, that was my mother's primary employment, was being a domestic worker in a predominantly white household. And as my mother was preparing to transition, she passed away in September of last year, 2020. We would have these stories, just wanting to know her stories Mm -hmm. more. And she would always share these stories, but it became even more important during her last months. And she would talk about how she was treated. And she wasn't mistreated in these homes. But it was what was expected of her to do Mm -hmm. in terms of entertaining the children and going on trips with them. And so not just being a domestic worker and caring for the home, but also caring for the children. And she would talk about that. And at 18, that's where she lived. She lived in their homes until she got married. And then she would go back and forth to their homes. There was no bus in Beachville. Okay. So Beachville didn't get a, a metro transit until well into the late 1980s. So we used to use the bus that was going like Acadian Lines. Yeah. would go to Yarmouth, so we yeah. had to pass Beachville. So sometimes you would pay your $3 to get to Halifax, or you would walk. I haven't heard Acadian Lines for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the way that you got into town. Yeah. The Acadian Lines bus would stop, or you would walk to get into the city, or hitchhike. Like I remember hitchhiking as a child to go home from Halifax, because I loved hanging out in Uniac Square in Mulgrave Park. I was glad that I had cousins that lived on Creighton Street because yeah. that was my way to get into the city. Yeah. <laughs> and going to go to the Centennial Pool. Yeah, yeah. fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's right. so as a domestic worker, that was what mom did. And, and mm-hmm. often people who worked in homes of white people didn't have insurance. They didn't have health plans. Mm-hmm. And so they did their best with what they had. Thankfully, my mother eventually became a waitress or a head waitress at Keddie's, the hotel used to be on the Armdale Road. I think it's now called a Best Western. And when my father passed away when I was 14, mom knew she needed more. So she went back to school in her late 40s and became an insurance broker. Wow. And started selling insurance. And she had to rewrite her test a couple times to pass, but she was determined Mm -hmm. to get a better job to provide for her family, and she did. Mm -hmm. But during that time, what she experienced was painful. And I remember that she would bring home bags of clothing for us as kids that would be coming from the families that she worked in. And, and, And so- You just said families. Right, so it wasn't they, one. It was no. M- there wasn't. There would be more than one family that you would you'd work for. So you mentioned about living in, like, so if there's multiple. Fa- how would that work exactly? There would be a primary household that you would live in, but then you would support perhaps the cousin or the neighbor next door if you had time. This kind of sounds a little bit like an extension of servitude. Oh uh, yeah, so we've yeah. heard that indentured servant, <laughs> indentured servant type thing. Yeah, it's interesting. But that they were they up. were paid, right? They were paid. I don't know how much they were ah. paid. Right, but lower um, than. But lower than, and they had a place to live. Yeah. Right, yeah. I, and I, I don't want to, to jump around, but there's a story that's coming to my head when you talked about mom and mom working in the South End as a domestic worker. And Christmas time, there's a couple of houses that could really beautifully decorate it down the South End. And everyone goes there. Like, they mm-hmm. all tore it, right? So I remember one Christmas holiday saying to mom, oh, let's go look at the lights in the South End. Why did I do that? So we're driving down the sofa, and I'm just so excited to be showing mom all these beautiful houses with all these lights. And as you're driving, mom's like, I cleaned that house. I cleaned that house. I said, okay, our tour is over. Let's go up to North Preston and look at the beautiful lights in North Preston. Because I know that you're not going to say, I cleaned that house and that house. You're actually going to enjoy the Christmas lights. So those were telling moments for me when mom would, things that I think is enjoyable, and beautiful and she would recall her memories of working in those homes 
And it's just, it's not necessarily traumatic, no. but it's. For like, me, wow. it's like, wow. Yeah. Like, it's oh my goodness. It is. You're like, right. It is. This is where I work. Like, yeah. I work in the South End. Dalhousie's in the South End. How many of these houses that I'm walking past have you been in? And we say this again very cynically, but also acknowledging the fact that that's what they had to do. Right. Yeah. Right? Because mom come from a family of 13 brothers and sisters. Yeah. So who can care for 13 brothers and sisters? You either need to go out and work someplace or you need to go to the military mm-hmm. or you need to do something because we can't take care of 13 children in this small house in Cherry Brook. And so she was approached by another friend who was already working um, in, in, in the Halifax for a family. said, oh, Bernice, you should come and work for this family. They're looking for somebody. So some of the women would recruit other women to come in because they thought it was, you know, it was better than living home and not having as much come and live with this family. And that's the reality of black mothers. And so these women would talk about in the research the impact of racism, Mm -hmm. where some would talk about how they didn't want to live in some cases. They Mm -hmm. didn't want to go to work. Some had suicidal thoughts. Yeah. Because it was so much as soon as they get to work. Some talked about the microaggressions. In the oh. macroaggressions and how the microaggressions build up yeah. and how often black women get labeled the angry black women. Mm. And we walk with that. And that's real. Right. When people think that about us as, as black women. And so in researching about these women, it was absolutely powerful. Or have we been associated, we been with, associated like with from the community yeah. aspect? Right. Right. Yeah, because I remember one time my car running out of gas and knocking on a door and you could see people mouth, there's a black girl at the door. And it's like, are they going to open it or not? <laughs> like, I felt safer in the north end of Halifax yep. as a young person than I feel in the south end of Halifax. So I think that leads us into another area that we really want to touch on with you, given your research. Yes. And I mean, that is, given everything that we see today, how important is the conversation about diversity and inclusion. The conversation is very important. We as black people have been in Canada, in Nova Scotia, for over 400 years. Mm -hmm. And even though we've been here for over 400 years, people still see us as visitors. And if we leave outside of Nova Scotia, and even sometimes in Nova Scotia, especially as more people come to Nova Scotia, we are often asked, where are you from? And our answer is Nova Scotia. Yep. Where's your parents from? Nova Scotia. Where's your grandparents from? Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is where I am from. And then if you want to know historically where I'm from, I claim Sierra Leone, West Africa, Uh because in 1792, 15 ships sailed direct from Halifax Harbor to Sierra Leone. And that's where it gets awkward. Exactly. They're like, oh, oh, I didn't didn't mean that. I didn't mean anything by that. You asked me like four times where I'm from. So when we talk about the importance of diversity and inclusion... We're not asking for something that we don't deserve. Mm-hmm. And I went to a presentation by Angela Davis when she was here at Dow, Dr. Angela Davis. And she said, why are we fighting to be included in something that people don't want us in? We shouldn't be asking to be included. We should be just taking it. Mm-hmm. Because, at least have the problem, though. So. <laughs> exactly. Or at least have the option to. Yeah. Yeah. So that's yeah. why we need to have more black-owned businesses. Yep. That's why we need to have more black schools. Mm-hmm. That's why we need to create. But when you say black schools, it's not a segregated school. It's just no. Afrocentric. Afrocentric. L- learning. Where we learning. Exactly. Where we, our history is yeah. taught yep. the same way we have French immersion, we should have Afrocentric immersion, which is something mm-hmm. we're looking seriously at. We should have the options to have those types of education opportunities so that we get grounded 
and who we are as people of African descent. Absolutely. And so when it comes to diversity and inclusion, and my, one of my most recent positions at Dow is I'm an assistant vice provost of equity and inclusion, which started July 1st. And so that's to make sure that people are no longer doing harm to diverse groups. And that they're recognizing Uh, the contributions and the importance of diversity in that. So that's why I go back to diversity inclusion. I appreciate diversity inclusion, but we're not asking to be included. We're asking to have what is ours and to be recognized our contributions. This province, this country would not exist if it wasn't for African Nova Scotians, if it wasn't for people of African descent. Mm -hmm. So we need to be careful of how we use this word included. as opposed to recognized Mm -hmm. and given due diligence. When you go back to Martin Luther King, who says, we've been written a blank check of insufficient funds. Every job that we have, if we are not there, that's insufficient. So again, we're not asking for something that we don't deserve. And it goes back to the way that people talk about reparations. How much money did you make off of the back of slavery, off the back of servitude, off of the back of low income, off of the back of our people Your mother. of African descent? Your mother, mother, as an example. As an example. <laughs> yeah. How much money has been made by this country in this province at the sacrifice of black people. But going to your point of visible minorities, and I'm thankful that I'm older and wiser. So whenever anybody uses the term visible minorities, I said, there's nothing minor about me. And and if you put all the so-called visible minorities together, we're actually the majority. So the use of visible minorities is meant to denote power. And so I will not allow you to use that word in my presence. And I tell them that. Because when you use minority and majority... You're denoting power. When you Uh think about South Africa, Uh you're using power to define who I am. So I will not allow you to use visible minorities because there's nothing minor about me. If you want to use racially visible, you can. But you cannot use minority because I am not a minor and I am not a minority. I'm not using that word again. So... I, and I sit that on makes so much sense to me now. <laughs> and I sit on the Shirk committee, and I just uh. had a recent meeting. And Shirk is the social science health research, and we're sitting mm-hmm. there as as part of the anti-racism because not a lot of funding has been going to the Black community. And I have said to Shirk, "Don't wait until Justin Trudeau stops using the word visible minority. You make the intent right now to stop using it." Mm-hmm. JT. And yeah. I said, and if we start doing that, then perhaps the federal government will come on side and stop using it, because I don't use it. And one thing you you touched on here, and I've heard this, like the four designated groups in Canada, right? right? There's that category of visible minorities. Oh, I don't use that word. And so this is the thing. What I found, African Nova Scotians get grouped into that visible minority categorization. And so, you know, when you start talking about diversity, oh, we're diverse, Mm -hmm. we're diverse. And I'm sending back and I'm saying, no, you're not, because... My experience is different than a lot of these Absolutely. other visible minorities. Right. There's, um, there, we don't have, we have more barriers. Exactly. And our, our, our experience of racism so, is historical, is long impacting. And that's not impacting. taking away from other people of African descent. Where no. I'm not taking away from the people exactly. from the continent. I'm not taking away from people from the Caribbean. But our education system, as soon as we stepped into school at, at age four or five, we're experiencing racism. Even before we get to school. Even Even before before. we get there. So our whole life has been fighting against this thing called racism, and you continue to fight it. So given the current size of Beachville Mm -hmm. and the efforts that happen over history, like over the last couple of centuries to, you know, dwindle the community to its current size. Do you feel that Beachville is like at risk of losing its identity? 
I would say that Beachville is standing strong. We have a lot of strong activists mm-hmm. within the community. There's a strong Beachville um, Heritage Society group. They were able to successfully advocate for the Lakeside Industrial Park name to be changed um, to Beachville Industrial Park. So they continue to fight for the land that is Beachville. Mm-hmm. We recently had some excavation come in about the fact that there's been settlements. There's been proof of settlements, and we're thankful for the Office of African Nova Scotian Affairs, of settlements that have been there since the 18th century. And so once you become acknowledged mm-hmm. as a historical site, all building and all development is supposed to cease and desist. Because now you have to get the proper land and you have to get the acknowledgement of being that historical site. Mm-hmm. So all I can say is that there are still many descendants of Beachville that live in Beachville. Mm-hmm. And I am thankful that they continue to fight for Beachville to remain who they are. Absolutely. But it's a challenge. Mm-hmm. And it's a challenge in our black communities. So we can only hope and pray. And I express to them that I want to join that fight. I haven't been actively involved in that fight. Mm-hmm. I've allowed myself to be disconnected just because of where I live and my job. But they need more people who are from the community of Peachville to join that fight with them. Mm-hmm. Because if we don't continue to fight for our land, if we don't continue to educate our population that exists here, people of African descent, we have that risk of disappearing. Wow. I, I wish you guys can see our faces right now. <laughs> this is... A- uh, it's every time we have these conversations and, you know, the process to get somebody, our first special guest in person here, it's been truly a rewarding experience. I've enjoyed myself. So we would like to thank Dr. Barb Hamilton Hinch again for being on the Loyalist Connections podcast, established 1783. Thanks for listening to the Loyalist Connections podcast. This episode was produced by your host, myself, Luis Gabriel Downey, and Sean Smith, with support from Podstarter. Also, we want to give a special shout out to Grace McNutt, who patiently endured our stressful antics and helped us find our voices through this journey. Special thanks for the support from Community Partners, the Black Cultural Center, and the Black Loyalist Heritage Center and Society. Please visit these historical museums for more information on the community and so much more. We can't forget to thank our special guests for their time and sharing their community connections and shedding light on this vital element of our history of the initial settlers. Your lived experiences and contributions to the history of Beachville is helping build a better picture of what life is like for our ancestors and fill gaps in our understanding of the lasting legacy of African Nova Scotian and more broadly, Canadian history. Dr. Barb Hamilton Hinch, contributions to our history will forever be documented for generations to come as we continue on our journey of building a digital heritage repository of our collective history. Until the next episode, listen, like, follow, and share Loyalist Connection Podcast and all your favorite platforms. And make sure to follow us on Instagram at Loyalist Connections Podcast. And for exclusive content, including access to unedited episodes, join the Loyalist Connections community on Patreon.com. Until the next episode, stay connected.